The International Conference on Missions, or ICOM, is going to be held here in Indianapolis on November 20th and the 21st. It's going to be a virtual conference for the most part, but there are going to be some in-person activities that take place as well. We have a, a, an ICOM table up in the commons that I would love you to stop by and visit after the service. We actually have the director of ICOM and his wife, Dave and Sherry Empson, here tonight, right over here. Uh, let's welcome them uh, tonight. Dave has been a friend of Mount Pleasant's for a long, long time, and we appreciate him so much. Uh, I don't know if you've ever attended ICOM or not. It used to be called the National Missionary Convention. It's been here in the Indianapolis area several times. Um, ICOM, if I were to describe it, I would say it was a, it's a powerful time of fellowship. It's a powerful time of connection. It's a powerful time of refreshment. Uh, for those who are serving on the mission field, it's a powerful time of collaboration, a powerful time of challenge. It's a powerful time of recruitment, teaching, you, I could just go on and on and on. Jeff Vines is this year's president of ICOM. And I don't want to um, uh, take any time away from his message because I've heard Jeff preach and I know he's going to deliver a powerful message. So let me just tell you this. Jeff is someone who's been a missionary. He's an author. He's an apologist. He's the pastor of One and All Church in San Dimas, California. And he is going to be a great blessing to all of you. His wife, Robin, is here. We want to welcome her as well tonight. And let's give a warm Mount Pleasant welcome to Jeff as he comes to preach with us tonight. All right. Hey, it's, uh, it's so good to be with you. Uh, I've heard so much about this church. I've actually been in the church a few times, but never in the sanctuary, never in the worship center, just with meetings associated with Dr. Ajay Law. I think some of you know who he is. And uh, just, just uh, coming from California uh, and seeing all the green and all the fields, you know, it's, you have so much green here. Everything's so dry out there. And when I tell people I'm in California now, and I have been for 12 years, they often look at me and say, well, have you been tested? And I always say, yes. And so far, I'm clear of absolute imbecility. Because if you know anything about California, it's one big loony bin out there. And originally, I'm from Tennessee. I'm a southern boy. So going out and living there has been a whole new world. But I am safe. No imbecility here yet. So uh, I'm not contagious. I am the president of ICOM this year, and uh, ICOM has meant a lot to me because it was at an ICOM event that I decided I was going to go into missions and give my life to Africa. Robin and I spent 10 years in Africa, 10 years in New Zealand, and I've been 12 years as the lead pastor of what was Christ Church of the Valley, now one and all church with locations in California, but also around the world now. My favorite place by far is India. And... Uh, I was with my good friend, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, this January, and that would have been just a few months before his death, and then attended the funeral. And I got to hear Dr. Zacharias's, and those of you who don't know who he is, he's probably the premier apologist, the greatest thinker of our time. And he traveled to Oxford, Harvard, uh, he would, all through Europe, uh, all through Africa, Asia, defending the gospel. In incredible man. And Ravi and I became good friends in 1999. But... I want to tell you something he told us, and it's a great way to segment or start what we're going to talk about. If you want a text for this weekend, my text is Genesis 1 through Revelation 21. <laughs> we're going to look at the big picture just for a moment. So these two young Indian men are seated across the table from each other, and one looks at the other and says, you know what, I'm bored. I, I, let's play a game. And he said, I've got a great idea for a game. Uh, I'm going to ask myself a question, and if I can answer my own question, you've got to give me $5. 
And the, his friend looked at him and said, what? That's a silly game. Yeah, just play along. I'll ask myself a question. And if I, get a, if I answer my own question, you've got to give me $5. And he said, but don't worry, because then you get to ask yourself a question. If you can answer your question, I'll give you 10 So the guy said, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll be up five bucks because I'm, I'm sure going to answer my own question. So he agrees, and the guy says, okay, I'll go first. Here's my question. How can a rabbit burrow a hole in the ground, dig a hole in the ground, without leaving the dirt on the outside? And my answer is by starting from the inside. And his friend says, well, how can he do that? He said, I don't know. That's your question. (laughs) Most of my life has been traveling around the world and answering some of the most difficult questions. Some of the university events that we've done with RZIM, you never know what kind of question you're going to get. But one of my greatest experiences was in New Delhi, India, A couple of years ago, when I got the privilege of playing a round of golf with a Hindu philosopher, Ajay had set up a golf game. I show up. They paired me with someone who's a member of the club, and wouldn't you know it, he's a Hindu philosopher. We have four and a half hours together on the golf course, another couple of hours doing lunch. And I ask him, what is the biggest challenge in the millennial Hindu Because, you know, we're all talking about in America how we're so concerned that the millennials in America are going to walk away from the church. So I thought, I'll ask him, what is your biggest struggle? Now, after a couple of hours, he let down his guard. So he was beginning to trust me a little bit. And he shook his head. I'll never forget this. He looks at me and he says, my biggest concern is that the millennial Hindu is going to turn to Christianity. Now, you think about this. In America, we're afraid they're going to walk away. In India, his biggest fear. This is a, this is a, a sharp intellect. We're taught, a PhD in philosophy teaches not only Hindu philosophy, but teaches philosophy as a greater uh, a practice or science. And he says, my concern is that the Christian faith is so coherent that Young Indian millennials may become converted to Christianity. Now, you know what he means by coherent? Because the world has access to the internet now, people are asking questions about origin, meaning, morality, destiny. And because they're exposed to different faiths or religions or philosophy, the young generation in India is looking for coherency. In other words, my understanding of origin and meaning must correspond with what I believe about what is right and wrong and ultimately where I will end up, destiny. And he's concerned that because the Christian faith is so coherent, internally coherent, that young Indians may turn to Christianity. That's a big concern. Especially, he said, because you have a historical event in the past that gives you objective proof of life after death. What's he talking about? The resurrection. Folks, I don't know if you know this, but there is something very unique happening in Israel right now. According to Barna Research Group and an article in the Jerusalem Post, there are now 177,000 Christians in Israel. And guess what? One-fifth of all Jewish millennials believe Jesus is the Son of God. 80% identify themselves as religious Jews 20% of Jewish millennials believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. Now remember, anytime something happens in a given generation, it rises to the level of 10% on the increase. We call that an epidemic. So there is a Christian epidemic happening in Israel. Ari Kelman, someone that I follow who teaches religious studies at Stanford University, 
don't always agree with him, but he says, you know what? These don't look like Jews I recognize. Maybe these are Jews we've never seen before. And my favorite part about the article is that they tell us that one-third of Jewish millennials now believe that God actually desires a personal relationship with you. I was in conversation with my dear friend, Dr. Zacharias, not too long before he died again. This was last November, then we were together in January, and he passed away in, uh, I think, March. And I said, tell me, Dr. Zacharias, what do you really think about the prognosis that people continue to give us concerning Christianity in the world? And here's what he said, pay very close attention. He said, don't believe the prognosticators for a moment There are 80 million Christians in Russia, 100 million in China. God, faith, Jesus are alive and well. It's just that the center of Christianity has shifted. What does he mean by that? The center of Christianity has shifted. Andrew Walls, another respected historian concerning world Christianity, reminds us that wherever the world's religions began, that place continues to be their center today. So you've got Islam has its Arabia or its Mecca. Buddhism has its Far East. Uh, Hinduism is primarily, uh, predominantly an Indian religion. Christianity is the exception. Its center is always moving from Jerusalem to the Hellenistic Gentiles, from the Hellenistic Mediterranean world to Alexandria, to North Africa, to Rome, uh, to the Northern Europeans, to the Franks, the Anglo-Saxons, to the Celts, All of Europe and beyond, until the 20th century, something happened, unprecedented. Christianity began to recede in Europe and North America, but she began to flourish in Latin America, Asia, India, Africa, so that at this point in time, for the first time in all of world history, there are more Christians living in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern. The center has shifted to Africa, to South America, Asia. Andrew Walls replied when he was asked why, he said this, one must conclude that there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say there's a certain vulnerability of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I was reading, trying to understand all of this, Dr. Tim Keller's book, King's Cross, And he elaborates what Andrew Walls meant by referring to what Dr. Zechariah said about the center has shifted. And here's what he says. He says, the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. He says, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period of time, the radical message of sin and grace on the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually, it becomes virtually dormant in those places, and the center moves someplace else or somewhere else. Philip Jenkins, in his book, Becoming Evangelical Crisis, says that affluence will eventually always snuff out Christianity. Now, what does that mean? You know what affluence means? Affluence means that you don't have to worry where your next meal's coming from. It means that you don't have to worry about having a roof over your head. It means that your car has a better house than two-thirds of the rest of the world. It's called a garage. And he says that Christianity shifts from affluent places, and there's a reason. I'll give you a good example. 
Uh, after the Rwandan genocide, just by show of hands, and online, I know you're following as well. You can raise your hand. We won't see you. How many of you know about the genocide that took place in Rwanda in 1994? How many of you are aware of what happened? Okay, so most of you. One million Tutsis were slaughtered by the Hutu tribe in, in 90 days. You basically, after you were given the word, you walked across the street with a machete in hand and you sliced up your neighbors. 1994, one million died. I was part of a group that was asked to go into the prisons of Rwanda under President Kagame and preach repentance to the prisoners. So Kagame decided that the best way that you could heal a nation was not retribution. He took a cue from Nelson Mandela in South Africa and decided he would develop what was called the Reconciliation Commission. So my job, Rick Warren, there were about three others, went into prisons with translators and we were to preach the message of the gospel. Now, the strange thing about this is Kagame himself was not a Christian, but he believed that the message of the cross and forgiveness was the only hope for his, la his, his land. The only way would not be retribution, but somehow these prisoners would find repentance that they would recognize they could not be good with each other until they were good with God. So we're making our way. This is probably our fifth or sixth trip I land from London, actually Nairobi, in Kigali, the capital city of Rwanda. Anastas Sabamunga, my translator, we'd become good friends. This is my fifth or sixth trip. He meets me at the airport, and if you ever, you know, you know what it's like flying for 48 hours. You're just, you're, you just want to go to the hotel, wherever he's got you, get a bed and go to sleep. He meets me at the airport, and he says, Pastor Jeff, I know you're tired, but a great opportunity has arisen. We've just gotten permission to go onto the border of the Congo and preach the message of the gospel to those who orchestrated the genocide. So we're talking to the orchestrators. Before, we'd just gone into people who had taken uh, a part in it or participated, but these are the orchestrators. And I said, great, we'll leave first thing tomorrow. And he said, no, we're leaving right now. It's a three-hour journey. And the, you know, the, the Kilgali, Rwanda's called Land of a Thousand Hills. So it's called that for a reason. And you're doing this for three hours. We stopped halfway up the hill. And we decided finally just to get a, a, a hotel room uh, for the night. A, a hotel I use loosely. And then we would drive on in the morning to be at the prison when we needed to be there. I was tired, but around five o'clock in the morning... I was awakened by noise outside, and I got up and went over to the window, and there were all these Christ followers kneeling down on the ground to welcome in the new day. And I said, I said to Anastas, what's going on? He goes, oh, these are Christians. I said, what do you mean? What are they doing? Well, every day, Christians in Rwanda get up to welcome the new day in prayer and to praise God for giving life. And I said to Anastas, and Anastas knew me well now, to be honest with me. And I said, Anastas, why am I not like that? And he said, don't worry, Pastor Jeff. You can't help it. You're an American. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, well, you're distracted by affluence. God blessed your nation, and now those things have become your gods. Your places of worship are your homes and vacations and restaurants. All we have in Rwanda is Jesus. It's hard to take, isn't it? We got to the prison. From the hotel room to the prison, Anastas is talking to me the entire time, and he's saying, now, Pastor Jeff, this is different from any prison we visited. It's important that you do what I tell you to do. 
You stay between me and the wall. We'll talk to the warden. We go in. I'll have the camp, the pastors behind you, the chaplains. You'll deliver the message. You will not mix and mingle. After the message, you will go with me and we'll exit the gate. Right before we go in, I said, Anastas, you, am I in any danger? And here's what he said. Pastor Jeff, does it matter? Yeah. And because Anastas and I were good friends and we had known each other for a while, he said, you know, you American preachers are all alike. You like the romanticism of going to preach in Africa, but when it may cost you something, you back out. The type of Christianity that we are seeing in the Southern Hemisphere and in much of Asia and Africa, and if you've been, I'm sure Chris can tell you, if you've been to pastors and you've spoken with them in the northern regions of India where they've gone into Orissa and other places, they're a different breed than we are. I always come back feeling energized, but also a little guilty. They are more than willing. They live by the message of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it has become the pattern of their lives that the way to truly living is to die to yourself. I sat down with Ajay Law and those pastors on my last trip who were being torched and beaten with iron rods and dipped in hydrochloric acid and raped and tortured. And Ajay said, here was their message to American pastors. Do not pray that the persecution will end. Pray that we will be brave and courageous enough to endure it. This is how the kingdom grows. The difference between American Christianity and what I've noticed in Africa and in New Delhi is that most of us, and I said us, not you, most of us, when something bad happens, we immediately wonder why God has abandoned us. But that's not the attitude of much of Africa and Asia. When something bad happens, their first question is, what great thing is God going to do in my life? Have you ever asked that question in the middle of COVID-19? What great thing is God doing in me and in our country? The cross is extremely radical, folks. It is radical. Let me read that quote again. Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, this is affluent countries, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good, and eventually it becomes dormant, virtually dormant in those places, and the center moves somewhere else. What does he mean, respectable people? The number one enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of moralism. It's where you and I began to believe that we're actually pretty decent people and we don't need a lot of forgiveness. Now, we need some, so thanks, Jesus, for that. See you at the apocalypse, but we're not really that bad. And suddenly, because we don't feel that we've been forgiven much and we see ourselves as who we really are, we don't love much. And because we don't love much, we don't give much. Jesus himself said, he or she who has been forgiven much will love much. But we're respectable people. And the question of my entire life in ministry has been how, as a pastor, can I force Christ's followers into a radical commitment to Jesus? But you can't. Because the only way you'll have that kind of commitment is when you fall in love. And I can't make you do that. It's interesting. When I started dating my wife, Robin, nobody had to tell me to sit and talk to her. It's an amazing thing. What a guy can do before the wedding day. It's amazing. He talks to her, spends time. Nobody has to tell him, hey, you should be spending time with that woman if you want to marry. No, he knows that's what you do. He's falling in love. And he does things he never thought he was capable of doing. Now, he forgets after the wedding, but for a season, he's really good at it. The only way 
that you and I will ever have this radical commitment to take the gospel to the world is when we become people, and there's so much we could talk about, people who truly understand the philosophy and theology of the cross and how it intersects life and changes us. You know who know this, knew this better than anybody? God himself. You think about it. And I, I've shared this numerous times with people because I've tried to come up with a better scenario and to explain, or a way to explain this. But if God, transcendent God, if he wants to communicate to you and me the depth of his love for us in a way that we could understand in human language, what would be the best way to do that? I've thought about this often. You've got those four words in the Bible for love, agape, agapao, unconditional love, phileo, friendship love, eros, eros, which is erotic type, romantic love, and then you've got storge. In the original language, storge is quite a unique word, quite a unique description of love. It's the love a parent has for a child, and it's kind of separated from the other three. Now, unconditional love is a powerful thing. I don't think in a human experience we're capable of doing it, but we are capable of doing storge. And you can show me all kinds of moms and dads who would die for their kids. And so for you to understand in a way that we could as humans, the depth of the love of God, he gives up what is most precious to him so he will not lose you. And that is probably the most powerful thing in the human experience that God could have done to demonstrate his love. Radical faith and trust and doing things where you, for, you give up self in order for a greater good comes when first you fall in love. And so my life has changed as a pastor, a preacher. I'm just sorry that it took me 55 years to learn this. I've decided it's not my role to make people feel guilty. My goal is to give you Jesus every time we're together in hopes that one day you'll fall in love with him and then everything will be a byproduct. And in the short time I have left, I want to give you just a little bit of that. And that's what we're going to do at ICOM this year. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface here. But our speakers, Charlie Delaney, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, that we were able to film some before he's his death, and then Dr. Ajay Law, they're going to take us into a new arena in the love and the radical sacrifice that we give as a result. There are byproducts associated When you fall in love with Jesus, and if you don't fall in love with him, you're just going to go through the motions. You're going to still feel the guilt and the shame, and joy will never become centralized in your life. Sorrow will be centralized, joy peripheral. You'll have moments of, of joy, but until you fall in love with Jesus, joy can't become central and sorrow peripheral. You'll still have sorrowful times, but because you've answered the big questions of life, you will live with this exuding internal joy when you fall in love with Jesus. Let me give you three things. These are three of the things that I usually talk about when we go to university campuses at Arizona State one year. These, are, these were three of the, the issues that plague students the most. And I want to give them to you. I know that you know them, but it's good to be reminded quickly. Number one, only the cross gives a satisfactory answer to the problem of pain and suffering and evil. Now, this just isn't some kind of an abstract idea to me because most of you know in life, you're going to have disappointments. You're going to have personal pain and you're going to have pandemics. 
But from someone who's traveled the world and spoken to atheists who can't even justify the question, because if there's no God, there's no such thing as real evil, pain, and suffering. It's all just bad luck, wrong place, wrong time. From the Buddhist and the, the idea that pain is an illusion for, to the Hindu and the idea of reincarnation. In a debate in New Zealand in the early 2000s, I had someone ask me this question. Why is Jesus any different? Does he really give a satisfactory answer, comprehensive answer to the pain and suffering in our lives? Really? Is he any different? And the answer is yes. And you know the example because Job, in the book of Job, which most scholars believe was the first book in the Bible, the book of Job, it has statements about creation that even Genesis doesn't have. Job, here's his argument with God. He says, God, if you will tell me why this is happening to me, then I'll be able to accept it. God, if you'll just explain the why all these things are happening around me, then I'll be able to endure it and I'll take it like a man. And finally, after 37 chapters, what does God do? He speaks, he says, okay, really, Job, let me get this straight. If you understand, if you have an exhaustive understanding of why you're going through this, you'll be able to readily accept it. And Job basically says, yes. And what does God do? God says, okay. Let me give you a long list of things that you don't understand exhaustively that you readily accept every day of your life. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Have you been to the constellations? Have you been up there in the sky? You know all that up there in space? Have you been to the depths of the ocean? You don't even understand how the sun goes up and down in your mind. You don't even understand how it is that a doe gives birth to a fawn. That it happens, you understand it in the wilderness. How it happens, you don't have a clue. And yet those are things you readily embrace and accept every day because it doesn't impact you. And all of a sudden you've got your pain and you think you have to have an exhaustive understanding in order to endure it. And God says, Job, your pain is no different. There is a point at which you're finite. I'm infinite. There's a point at which you stop and I start. And on the basis of that, you can trust me. Now, if that were the finality of the answer, that'd be depressing, wouldn't it? But it's not. Because Job says at the end, we all know the verse, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand upon the earth. What is Job saying? Job is simply saying, I may never have an exhaustive understanding of my pain because I'm limited in my knowledge and wisdom, but what I do have, and this is what Christianity gives, this is what Jesus gives, there's nothing even similar to it in any other faith system. I will have a prevailing, a prevailing presence to walk with me every step of the way. You know, do you remember that movie, The Wrath of Khan? And they had what they called the Genesis effect, and they would shoot this torpedo into a planet and everything would come alive. The Puritans call the Holy Spirit the expulsive power of a new affection. When you and I become Christ followers, we're told that the very spirit of the living God torpedoes into us. And suddenly we're able to see things we've never seen, do things we've never done, a greater sense of volition, feel things we've never felt. And because of that, when we enter pain and suffering, we may never understand it completely, but we know there's a God in us. The Bible tells us that we are partakers of the divine nature, that the spirit of God will comfort and illuminate the way. I don't believe you could ever find a missionary that couldn't illustrate this in practical ways. When Robin and I were doing ministry in Africa, there was the chief of the village that lived just across the street from our farmhouse. 
And we knew that if Mr. Mashonga would become a Christ follower, that the rest of the village would come. It's just the way it works. You got to knock the big guy out. And so we started praying. Now, the thing about Mr. Mashonga, even though he lived across the street from the church, he never came, never visited. But his son, Virus, and his little girl, Shingy, were always at the church. Robin would be teaching them Sunday school lessons and giving them, you know, this thing called Mazoe, which is an orange-flavored drink. And then uh, Virus would be over playing basketball, and I built a, a, a soccer field as well just by, beside the church. He was always there. We decided we would pray for the conversion of Mr. Mashonga because we knew what that meant to our church. So we went on a 30-day prayer journey, and we prayed that God would orchestrate and fashion events together in his life to bring him, to open up his eyes to the truth of the gospel and bring him into the church, into the kingdom of God. So we prayed, and I know some of you who know me well have heard this story before. The short version is that when we ended the prayer time at 30th day, Patrick, a young boy that was a good friend of Virus, Mr. Mashonga's son, came to our gate and told us that Virus had been killed. Now, he's only 14 years old. And I remember in my car going to the hospital because the truth of it is that Virus had been injured in a rugby game. He had been tackled, his head had come into contact with a rock, and he was in a coma, but it didn't look good. So all the way to the hospital, I remember as a 22 or 23-year-old telling God, you know, God, you messed up. You ever done that? This is not good. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, you allowed this whole thing to happen so that I could go down to the hospital, I could go into the room and pray a prayer, and we're going to raise this kid up, and Mr. Mashonga is going to become a believer. What's not to like about that plan? And I walked by the ER room or the ICU waiting room, and Mr. Mashonga looked at me, didn't say anything, but kind of looked at me as if like, okay, I've heard about you, and I, you talk about this all-powerful God. Okay, let's see how powerful your God is. Go in there and do something about my son. And I go into the hospital room and I pray for like two or three hours and he dies. And the ICU uh, director tells me, would you please, Pastor Jeff, would you go and please tell the, the family? So I had to go tell the family. I told Mr. Mashonga, he just stilly-eyed. It was a Saturday night. I had to get up the next morning and preach. I went back under my desk that night and just kind of, sat there and I debated with God, you know, God, this was a good plan. You know, you could have, I mean, I know you're powerful. You've done it before. If you could just do this, then everything would be fine. I don't understand you, God. I went to preach the sermon the next morning, packed house, because everyone wants to know what the pastor's going to say. And about 10 minutes into my sermon, Mr. Mashonka starts walking up into the building. I mean, he's walking and he's not stopping. He walks up the stairs and now he's walking up to the pulpit and what do you do? He says, Pastor Jeff, would you mind if I had a word with my people? Now, you know, when the chief asks you to have a word with his people, you're 23, you, you got to sit down. So I sat down and I just started thinking, how long will it take me to pack all my stuff and get back to the U.S.? You know, because my ministry's over here. And Mr. Mashonga, and there's so many details I've left out, but for the sake of time, he knocks on the pulpit and he says, look, I... I know most of you know that my son Virus has passed away. My heart is broken. But I'm here this morning because I want to tell you that when my son Virus and my little girl Shingy started coming to this church, he was a better student. He was a better man. He was a better person. And I was just wondering, whatever it is you gave to him, would you give that to me too? Mr. Mashonga became a Christ follower. 
became the chairman of the board of elders, and that little girl grew up to marry Denver Chizanga, the pastor that I just happened to train to take my place when we left. And they're setting Zimbabwe on fire with the gospel. What is the point? Only the Christian faith tells you that God will take a disadvantage, turn it into an advantage, and use it for his glory. And one of my favorite illustrations in this comes from actually a quantum physicist by the name of John Polkinghorne, who taught uh, quantum physics at uh, Cambridge University. And he said, it's always amazed me if you understood the relationship between the expansion and contraction of the universe and the early picoseconds. A picoseconds is the time it takes something traveling the speed of light to cross a hair's breadth. So if you really understood the fine-tuning, the relationship between the expansion and contraction of the universe in the early picoseconds, then you would understand how this powerful God brought beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of the early moments in the universe. And a God who can do that, Polkinghorne says, is a God who can bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of your life. Folks, we are people of the cross you know what that means? It means it is possible to be in the worst possible place of your life and be in the center of the will of God at the same time. When was Jesus most centered in the will of the Father? When he was dying on the cross, there was a greater good. There is nothing that comes close to a Savior who will walk with you where you are a partaker of the divine nature who torpedoes new life into you where you can see things and feel things and do things you've never seen, felt, done before. Now quickly, quickly. It's not only that, but there's a, there's a message in the cross whereby we have this objective future hope. Every faith system, every religion is looking for some kind of hope on the horizon. But as my Hindu philosopher friend said, only Christianity points to an objective historical event in the past to give us proof of a future hope and resurrection. Only Jesus offers that. I find it interesting in 1 Corinthians 15. I think that is such a profound passage. We don't spend nearly enough time on it. But the Apostle Paul is trying to talk about an objective source of the resurrection. In fact, when I was doing a talkback show in New Zealand over Good Friday, a lady called in and said, I wish you would stop talking about this resurrection. There is no objective proof. And I thought, that's not entirely true because the Apostle Paul uses this analogy. Think about it. You've got a seed that goes into the ground that dies, decomposes, and then springs forth to life. It's right from the environmental sciences. Now, that a seed can go into the ground, die, decompose, and bring forth a beautiful apple tree, we know, but we got no idea how it happens. Do you know that? No matter how smart we get, we know it happens, we just don't know how. It's almost like God gave us a little bit of an environmental science lesson that resurrection is possible. And what does Paul say? The body that shall be is far more glorious than the body that was. The difference between the seed and the apple tree is gargantuan. And the difference between you and me in the here and now in the world that is to come. Dr. Zacharias told me once that we say flippantly that Jesus is the only hope for this world, but he says, I want to tell you, Jesus is the only hope for this world. He walks with us through our suffering. Only Jesus promises this injection of new life to change not only what we do, but what we want to do. 
And the reason so many of us don't have the capacity or ability to change is because we've never fallen in love. Until you fall in love, the spirit of the living God doesn't inject you with his power to give you the ability to do things you never thought you could do. It's about falling in love. And it all comes from theology of the cross. Ravi told me on one occasion that he got to speak, and I'll end with this because I, I know we're close here, but Ravi Zacharias told me that he had a meeting with, uh, in Jerusalem with one of the 18 founders of Hamas. His name was Sheikh Halal. And he said, I was invited into this room, and all of us were given the opportunity to ask this guy one question, but there could be no rebuttal. In other words, you ask a question, get an answer, but you can't say anything after that. No debate. And because he knew that Sheikh Allah was a big fan of suicide bombing and destruction, his question was this, Sheikh, tell me what you think about suicide bombing. And Ravi said, I hated the answer that I received, but I couldn't say anything. But he said, we were walking, as God would have it, we were walking out of the meeting down the steps to get into the car, and Sheikh Allah came and put his arm around me. So I decided that was God's giving me an opportunity to speak to him. And he said, Sheikh, can I just say something to you about this world? Sure, Dr. Zacharias. Can I say to you that over there, not too far from where we are, is a mountain. And Abraham took his son on top of the mountain. Now, you guys say it's Ishmael. We say it's Isaac. For the purpose of our conversation, doesn't matter right now. The point is that as the knife was about to come down, the angel of the Lord stopped the knife there was a ram in the thicket, and Abraham heard the words what? God will provide the lamb. It's amazing. That's even in the story of Islam. Ravi knew that, so he said, I want to tell you another story. On that mountain over there, they took the Son of God, and they put him on a cross, and the knife was about to come down. But this time, God did not stop the knife, and he gave his son for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could have the spirit of the living God in us. And then Ravi looked at him and said these words. He said, Sheikh, until you and I receive the son that God himself has offered, you and I will keep offering our sons and daughters on the battlefield of this world for land and power. He said, the Sheikh started weeping, weeping. Perhaps we should stop dying for kingdoms of this world and living for one that lasts forever. That's what Christ offers you. Forgiveness of sins, a kingdom that will never fade away. And third, and I can't go into, but only Jesus gives a satisfactory cause and effect to authentic transformation. We've kind of dealt with that. It's that spiritual torpedo and as I travel around and talk to students, the, the thing that they're looking for, I promise you, the millennials, don't give up on them. Listen, I happen to love them. Let me tell you something about the millennials. Man, they are warriors. Once they believe something, they'll give everything up to achieve it. If we can just show them what Christ offers in a logical, compelling way, they'll come across because they're doing it in China, in Russia, in India. But you and I have got to convince them that we're truly in love with Jesus. And as a result, we're willing to give up everything, everything for the cause of Christ. When I was a little boy, uh, do they still play peewee baseball? Okay. Uh, when I played peewee baseball, you had the pitching machine. So 
uh, sorry, they have the pitching machine. Now, we actually had to throw the ball across the plate three times where the batter could hit it. So you got eight balls before you walk. Anybody remember that? Okay, eight balls before you, so the little peewee uh, baseball players, you put your worst players in the outfield because the ball never got there. And they put me out in right field. And I, I'm ADD. I'm still ADD. Uh, you could probably tell that. And so I would try to find things to do out in the outfield while I was waiting on a ball. And uh, my mother told me never to look at the sun. Don't stare at the sun. You, know, you pick four-leaf clovers, you run out of things to do. So I, I learned something, and this is the end. Not the end of the world, just the end of this message, which may seem like the end of the world to some of you, but I learned that if you stare at the sun and you close your eyes, that these beautiful little dots start bouncing around. It's a beautiful thing. These are blue and purple and pink and yellow. It's a beautiful thing, but you can't really see them clearly because they're unstable. They're jumping everywhere. So I, I was really upset. I really wanted to find a way that I could see them more clearly, so I learned that if you close your eyes, you have to stare at the sun. Don't do this at home. I am a professional sun watcher. When you watch and you close your eyes, if, if, instead of trying to look at the dots, you fix your gaze on a fixed point in the background, the little dots stabilize and come into perfect view, and you can really see how beautiful they are. And that is your life. As long as your focus is on you, the little dots of your life are going to be unstable and you will never see the beauty of life. But as soon as you take your eye off yourself and look at a bigger, a beyond, a fixed point in the horizon, the work of God in the world, then the little dots in your life will stabilize, come into full view. You'll see how beautiful life really is and will stop being so depressed and anxious because our soul knows ultimately what it is we're living for. When ICOM comes just in a few months, we are going to have these online sessions where you can go on and you can listen to these messages and hear choirs from Africa, children's choirs, and a village band from India, and Christian Bollywood from Ajay's team. Please be part of it. Because of our relationship with Vision Radio in Australia, Rama in New Zealand, and now Premier in London, we're anticipating that over 5.6 million people will see ICOM. That will be more than it has ever witnessed before because God is the one who takes a disadvantage, turns it into an advantage, and uses it for his glory. Amen? Father, thank you for your love, and I thank you for a great group of people who are passionate about missions, who are so passionate about the cross of Christ that we would sit and listen to a message that reminds us of its beauty in hope that somewhere along the line we could fall in love again. And that joy that we've been looking for that is centralized for so long would become part and partial to our life. So Father, we pray for ICOM, we pray for our speakers, we pray for our churches that they would participate and that they would spread the good news, the good word, and that people would hear a message about the cross that would cause those who are far from God to come near. And that's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.